your Bibles to Philippians. Anybody know what chapter we're on? Uh Uh-oh. Chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be shown. Let your reasonableness... (laughs) Okay. Let your reasonableness be shown to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, even as I stumble through it. Thank you for your patience. Many years ago... um, a missionary came to the church that Kelly and I were going to, and uh, he was going to pray, and we were going to receive gifts. And so I, I, he kind of went through the pews one by one, and when he got in front of me, he started praying for me, slapped me in the forehead, and I'm sitting there going, okay, what's happening? And when he was done praying, he said, brother, you got the power. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, I was pretty excited, you know, in the Pentecostal church. We were Pentecostals. And, uh, you know, after the service, I got up, and he came over, and he went, you have the power. And I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm excited. To do what? And he said, well, I don't know. But you have the power. You know, and we hear that, don't we? We hear the power we have as believers. And you know what? I, it's true. We do have power as believers. The the, the question is, the power to do what? And so the way it was presented to me back then was that I have the power to do miracles, to make supernatural things happen. Uh, And he said, you have the power to heal the dead, heal the the, the ill and raise the dead. And, And I wanted to believe that, except I prayed for people that didn't get better. Some of them did. And I prayed for people that had died to raise up, and it didn't happen. And I thought, there must be something wrong with my power. There must be some flaw. Maybe it's me. And of course, when I would go to people that were more experienced than I was at this, they would say things like, well, when your faith gets stronger, you'll have more power. So this is on me. But way in the back of my mind, I thought, maybe, maybe, there, maybe there's something wrong with this power thing. Because I wasn't seeing a lot of people that were being raised from the dead. So, we have power. The question is, the power to do what? Now, we've been on this wild ride through Philippians. 
We've seen that a small church can be very powerful and incredibly strong. We've learned that false teachers focus, listen carefully. We've learned that false teachers focus more on you than they do on the Lord. And so people are always asking me, how can I tell when I'm listening to a false teacher? I said, well, just ask yourself this question. Who's being elevated with this teaching? Is it about you or is it about God? Is it about you or is it about Jesus Christ? Is it about all the things you can do or is it about all the things that he's done? So false teachers talk about you. And we kind of like that. And they, they do this, we find out that they do this in the church, and many of them do it for selfish reasons. Now, we've also heard about trials and suffering, and how those are really gospel opportunities in our lives, our opportunities to put God on display. And we've watched Paul point to Jesus Christ at every opportunity, and then, you know, this just runs rampant through Paul's writings, and then encourage us to do the same thing. And even as Paul challenges us with all these things in Philippians, he urges us to give up everything, to give up everything that would chain or bind us to this world, and to do that in order to gain everything in the next. So then last week we saw that those who named Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are members of God's kingdom right here and right now. And we'll be made brand new. We'll have new bodies. That was good news for some of us, amen? We'll have new bodies when we stand in glory. But spiritually, we are residents. We are citizens of God's kingdom right now. So what do we do with all this? What, what do we do with all this information, and what does it mean to me today? Well, Paul always kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty and tells us what we should do to process the information he gives us. So what do we do about this today? How do I appropriate these things into my daily life? And the sermon today is called, You Have the Power. And Paul's going to show us exactly that we have the power to live as residents and citizens of the kingdom. So, we're going to take a look at three types of power that a Christian has. The power to unite, and that'll be in verses 1 through 3. We will see the power to strengthen in verses 4 through 7. And we will see the power to be pure, the power to be holy in verses 8 and 9. So, let's take a look at this power to unite. Uh, These are Paul's guidelines. And you have, to, you have to understand Philippians and how it flows, but here are the guidelines that come about as a result of everything that he's been teaching us in the previous three chapters. Uh, the righteous believers have faith, and they have a righteousness that is not their own. Uh, they, 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 we've heard about the painful destiny of those who are enemies of Christ. And so we've seen the fact that believers can walk in their new lives, that they can live as members of God's kingdom, live as if the resurrection was really theirs, that it had already appropriated it. They could live like Paul. But the reason that Paul keeps on telling them to live like him is because he's trying his best to live like Christ. So imitate me as I imitate Christ, he says in Ephesians. 
Now, because of all this, Paul now, now says, what, what should our reaction be? He's going to tell us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power of God's kingdom within us. It, it, it flows from us. And so Paul says this in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, he uses a Greek word, adelphoi, here. Um, and in the context of this, he's not talking about just men. He's talking about brothers and sisters, people like Talita. I just want to see if you were listening to me. <laughs> Bless you, sister. And Jillian, too. <laughs> so, so, therefore, my brothers, in this context, he's talking about all of us, siblings, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. This is unusual phrasing here. In particular, it's most unusual coming from a teacher to a student, which was back in then was a very formal type relationship. Paul lavishes this love upon the Philippians and begins to give them a series of imperatives. Anybody know what imperatives are? Rules, commandments, just fancy word for guidelines, things that we should be doing, okay? And then he's encouraging them to be obedient. We hear this word over and over again. Obedient to what? Obedient to the overall teaching. Paul is literally saying, God has done all of this for you, so your response should be along these lines. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, he says. He says, don't waver in your faith. Understand everything I've taught you. Don't let anyone cause you to stumble. Do what the word says. Do it with all of your might. Commit yourself to it and stay on the course. And Paul implores them to do this because, because he loves them. Because they're part of the body of Christ. Because they have union with Christ and union with each other. And that love should manifest itself. And the implication here is that their new life has given them power and endowed them with the capability to obey, to do what the Word says. Wow. The power is not there to do tricks, not to call attention to themselves, not to make a name for themselves. Not to gain anything, but to, to what? To stand firm. To stand on the solid rock of their faith. Stand firm in what they've been taught and what the scriptures instruct them to do. Now, reading Paul carefully and completely here, we can see that the only reason that they can even think about standing firm is because Christ is in them. Christ empowers them to be able to obey. And so now this has ramifications throughout the entire church and all of the churches, watch this, interpersonal relationships. So he says in verse 2, watch this, I entreat, he says, I plead with Iodia and I entreat, I plead with Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What's he talking about here? Well, clearly, these women have some tension between them. There's some issue that's risen up. And the first thing you need to notice is that Paul doesn't take a side. He's not there to determine 
who's right and who's wrong. He pleads with both of them. He doesn't even mention what the problem is. Maybe they already know it. But he doesn't offer an easy answer as to who's wrong and who may be right. He just asks that the two women deal with their differences. And this isn't a private concern. You know, it's going to take him off in the corner. And keep in mind that this letter was meant to be read to the entire congregation. It was a letter to the church at Philippi. Whatever the issue is, it's so serious that Paul wants to deal with it openly and transparently. There's a lesson for all of us right there. That he doesn't take sides on the issue shows us that the issue, whatever they're arguing about, whatever they feel bad about, is not the problem. The tension, the animosity, the division is the problem. And clearly, it's big enough that it threatens the unity of the church. Now, we've heard a lot about unity throughout Philippians. We have unity in Christ. We have unity with each other because we have unity in Christ. And there's no unity here. And you know how this goes. We've all seen it. We've probably been part of it. Things get heated. Accusations are made. People begin to take sides. Whispers in the corners occur. And then once that takes hold, the unity that Paul talks about just goes out the window. Now we're divided over an issue. The oneness we have in Christ is forsaken. We turn our back on it. And it's all over some worldly matter, or worse yet, some worldly type of behavior. Now, I don't want to have to tell you that this is not something that was isolated to the first century. Amen? Because we're about to go into an election season. (laughs) Are we not? And from every indication I've seen, it's going to be as heated as it has ever been in the past. And we'll take sides. And we'll go, oh, you got to vote for this guy. No, you got to vote for this guy. Oh, you got to vote for this issue. You got to vote for that issue. And, and things will get heated, hopefully not within our congregation, because we have today here unity in Jesus Christ. Amen? And we are not going to let worldly issues divide us. Amen? I'm going to hold you accountable for that. <laughs> And you can hold me accountable for it, too. But that's how these things promulgate. Arguments and animosity are a disease in the body of Christ. They are the antithesis of treating others as more significant than ourselves. They're the exact opposite of it. And long-lasting issues of division... Long-lasting issues of disunity require a high degree of stubbornness. We're going to hold on to it. And as folks square off and refuse to show the mercy and grace that we've all received as believers. Worse yet, some folks wind up leaving over things like this. The issues, and, and the problem with that is the issues never get resolved. They leave with bad feelings. They never get resolved in a godly fashion, and and they carry with them wounds 
and they leave behind them wounds. We've seen this before. And none of it, none of it advances the gospel. None of it puts God on display amongst a small group of people that are supposed to be reflecting his character and nature. Paul says the the church, us, we have the power to fix this. It just needs a reminder of the fact that we have this power. So Paul asks these two women to work it out, to be of the same mind. In order to do that, they have to humble themselves and recognize that the tension between those two women are damaging themselves and the church. And when he asks them to be of the same mind, he's not asking them to be one thing or the other, to take one side or the other, for one of them to be wrong and one of them to be right, but to orient their issue the same way that Paul has been asking them to orient their lives on Christ. Be of the same mind, focus on Christ. Make Christ your goal, to have his mind, to live like to live like two sisters that are going to be together forever. Oh, wait a minute. I wasn't thinking about that when I got mad. Do you understand that? That if we're saved by Jesus Christ, if we've confessed our sins, if we've repented and named him our Savior and Lord, we're going to be together forever. We're not going to be standing here and go, well, I remember that time you wore the same shirt I wore to church, and boy, that was embarrassing for me, and I've never forgiven you for that. All that stuff, Paul says, is garbage in light of the glory that waits for us. We're going to be together together forever. Paul says in verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Who's this? (laughs) Who's the true companion? Clearly, there's a recipient to the letter. I mean, if Paul was going to write the letter, he had to send it to somebody, right? And so, it had to be delivered by hand to someone. And Paul has confidence in this person. He knows him well enough that to know that he would do or she would do the right thing, take it to the church, and read it with the same love and compassion and mercy that Paul wrote it with. Paul would also trust this person to help carry out everything he wrote. So he says, help these women. Get involved. Don't take sides. Oversee the situation. And, and we, all, we all already know that when Paul says oversee the situation, he's not talking about being dictatorial or authoritative. Uh, There's no humility in any of that. Paul wants his true companion to keep in mind who these women are. And, and, And again, there's a reminder. They have labored side by side with me, with Paul, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They are co laborers, they are co workers. They share the same calling that we all share. They work for the same cause. They are all moving for the sake of the gospel. All of them, all of us who are believers are going to the same place, headed there for eternity. And we're all going to go there together. 
Paul says, take care of it now. Take care of it now. Don't let it distract you from what you've been called to do. And Paul's not only urging them to live this way, he's saying to the Holy Spirit, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is in them. Christ is in them. And he's given them the power to live the way that Paul is calling them to live and giving them the power to settle this in a godly fashion. They will be united for the, forever, but they have the power to live in unity right now. All you got to do is be obedient. All you got to do is what he tells us to do. Humble ourselves. Treat each other as more significant. Honor the people around us. I like that. But it's not easy. Amen? It's not easy. What does it look like? So Paul moved from this first power we have to be obedient, to be united, to the second power we have in our new lives. Because we have the, a, the capability to walk in union and in obedience, uh, to live our new lives like Jesus lived, because our names are written in the book of life together, we have the power to strengthen, starting in verse 4. And he starts out by saying, well, because of all this, you should celebrate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We just sang the song. And Paul's use of the word rejoice here indicates a, a giddy type of gladness. In other words, we should be, uh, our mutual salvation should cause tingles inside of us. It should raise our level of anticipation and excitement. It should cause us to giggle and smile with the joy of not having to suffer the consequences of our sins. Amen? We should act accordingly. We should, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Interesting word here, reasonableness. It's obviously an English word. Uh, the NIV translates this, I like this, as gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. I don't know that the evangelical church is noted for letting our gentleness be known to everyone. But that's what he's saying right here. It's a complicated word. In a broad sense, he's talking about leniency, tolerance. In other words, we shouldn't be at odds, in particular, with each other. And we shouldn't be at odds with the world around us. It doesn't mean that we engage in everything they engage in, but we're not here to point the finger at them and judge them. We're here to show them Jesus Christ. And part of the way we show them Jesus Christ is how we get along with each other. When they look at us, we should be set apart. We should be an unusual people, not unusual and strange like some people you know that are strange, <laughs> but unusual in that we don't do things the way the world does them. We're not out for ourselves. We're here for each other. So when he talks about this, he says, he says yeah, Paul, Paul's talked about this sort of thing before. Uh, in in uh, his second letter to Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, we're, we're soldiers, amen, we're soldiers in the kingdom. Paul says this, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits 
since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And later he says, and as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in worldly affairs, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. Soldiers perform with the power and the authority of their kingdom. We're soldiers in God's kingdom. And we've already learned that his kingdom is a heavenly one. And here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul cautions us not to waste our power and authority by battling issues that are worldly, by engaging in senseless and futile arguments and disagreements, but by demonstrating patience and mercy to everyone and reminding them that the Lord is at hand, the Lord is nearby, the Lord is coming back soon, we should avoid angry dialogue. Not only should we avoid angry dialogue, but verse 6, look at this. Do not be anxious about anything. It says, do not be anxious about anything except those things that really bother you. It says, do not be anxious about anything except those things that are really, really important. What's it say? It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Everything? Even those private struggles that I have? We've talked about this before. If Christ is in you, privacy is a myth, amen? There's no such thing as privacy. Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, this would have particularly high impact with the Philippians. They're in a hostile and dangerous environment. They stood to suffer at the hands of Rome, maybe even at the hands of their, their fellow Jews. Paul says, don't worry about all that. Instead of wasting your time and your energy and your your power butting up against the authorities and those who oppose you, get on your knees and pray and do it with an attitude of thanks. And this act of obedience, this is hard, amen? But as we surrender to the Lord, instead of fighting the battle for him, as we get down on our knees and begin to pray, This act of obedience, when performed sincerely, has an amazing promise that comes along with it. Paul says, pray, and verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will bless you. He'll bless you with peace. Not just peace, supernatural peace. He will guard your hearts, guard your minds. In other words, he'll help you to keep your focus, help you to keep your priorities straight. And with this, Paul puts on display this incredible power believers have in strengthening each other and encouraging each other. It's not overly complicated. Paul just did it. It's not, it's not something for only mature believers. He just kind of put it out there. It's a simple encouragement to lift each other up, to encourage each other to remember Christ, to avoid getting tangled up in worldly issues, and pray. 
spend some time concentrating on eternity rather than what my situation is. Spend some time meditating on our salvation. Spend some time considering God. So this level of encouragement is a spectacular display of the power that we have to strengthen each other, to encourage each other, to lift each other up, to build up the body of Christ and urge each other to keep an eternal perspective on things. Now, if we practice power number one, power number two, it will lead to the third power, the power to be pure, starting in verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, forget about these things. What's it say? What's it say? It says, think of these things. I can't right now. I'm too distracted. I've got too many problems. I'll get around to thinking about these things when my problems are solved. It's just never going to happen. Then in verse 9, he says this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, never do these things. Right? I just seen if you're all paying attention. What do we do with those things? The things that he's, that he's taught us, the things that we've seen and heard. He says, practice these things. So, as we think on those things, as we practice the things we've been seeing, the God of peace will be with you. Now, it, 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 this is not, okay, God's not going to be with you if you don't do these things. This is, you will be hyper aware of the fact that God is inside you as you do these things that the Word tells you to do. As a result of, of working towards unity, as a result of concentrating and strengthening and encouraging each other, Paul now tells us what we can do to be pure. In other words, what we can do to be holy. Now, he has two directives here. You've heard them. What to think and what to practice, what to do. He wants us to think on these seven items Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. There's any excellence, is there any worthy of praise. Now, if, if I'm a good preacher, I'm going to tear all those words apart and tell you what each one of them means, and it's going to be incredibly boring. Okay? So we can go into this deep analysis, but that would miss the point of what Paul's trying to do here. Because what he's trying to do, if you read carefully, you see that these things are a description of Jesus Christ. They're a description of who he is. They, and what his character and nature is. He's the only thing worthy of honor. He is the, his justice is absolutely perfect. He's the only pure one. He's the only holy one. He's the only truly lovely one. He is untainted and perfect and beautiful. He's the only commendable one. He's the only excellent one. He's the only totally obedient one. And he's the only one worthy of our praise. Paul said, think on these things. And if we do that, we find ourselves thinking about Jesus and thinking about what he's done for us, how we'll be with him forever, and what he's asked us to do. 
And as we do that, all these other things begin to fade away. Sounds easy, but it's not. Oh, it's easy when, when things are going well, but not so easy when they're not. Still, we have the Holy Spirit and Paul, and he's not asking us to do something God has not enabled us to do. God has enabled us to do this. What's hard is focusing on Christ when we're sorely tempted to focus on ourselves. What's hard is giving in to the will of God when we want to demand our own will, when we want things to go the way we want them to go. It's our nature. That's what comes natural. This is why Paul wants us to know we're being changed. This is why Paul wants us to know that we've been given this new life we talked about last week. With the power of the Holy Spirit and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do this. So Paul's first directive in being pure is to think in a new way. God has given us the power to do it, but Paul's given us an example to follow as well, and it's right there in his second directive. What he's really saying is, watch me. Watch what I do. Practice the things that I do. Put them into play. Imitate me. Now, I told you before, this is not Paul being prideful. He's just trying to live like Christ did. And he knows that the new life that he's been given, that we have, we've also been given the power to do it. And this is what he means when he says in verse 13 of this chapter, a little bit later, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I'd like to think that, believe that that says that I could be an astronaut, but it's not. We can do all things. We can do all these things that God is asking us to do through Christ in us. He says again in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the new life. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is in us, enabling us to do the things that God has called us to do. Christ is not some kind of superpower. There's no Shazam thing going on here. He's not some power given us to give us amazing capabilities. The power he brings is the power for us to be pure. The power for us to be holy, the ability to be holy, given to us by God through Christ for his glory. So there's our three types of power. Power to unite. The Philippians have the power to live in unity, even though even though there are some sharp differences within the church. Some personality struggles are there. All I have to do is set aside their personal feelings. All I have to do is set aside their anger, their pride. All they have to do is humble themselves. We've already heard Paul talk about being humble because they all have the same message, they all have the same goal, and that's Jesus Christ. We have the same power. And we have the same struggle. And it's not easy, but we can do it with the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit in us. All we have to do is respond to him. We have to be familiar enough with the word to know what he's saying. So we need to read our Bibles and respond to the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is make the conscious decision to live like Christ, to do the things that he tells us to do. We also have the power to strengthen. We can strengthen each other. That's what we're called to do. 
We can strengthen the body of Christ by encouraging each other, by lifting each other up, by spurring each other on, supporting each other, praying for each other. This is why our time of prayer is very important to us. If you get the Monday minutes, you see that, and, and you get the, uh, on uh, Tuesday night, Kelly sends out that, that prayer list. We should be praying for each other. This is an easy way to do it. We have within us and among us the power to strengthen the church. And it comes by deciding to be vessels of peace, vessels of mercy, vessels of patience, and refusing to be angry and argumentative, refusing to do anything that would divide us. So when we begin to harness that power to unite and the power to strengthen, we will begin to walk in that power to be pure power to be holy. It comes through Christ in us. We can do it. We can do it. We're never going to be perfectly holy. Amen? One day we will, standing in glory. But it's not going to happen while we're here. But we have the power to do what Paul says, to strive for it, to make that our goal. We have to be willing to yield to the Word, yield to the Spirit in us. But understand this. These three powers, the power to unite, the power to strengthen, the power to be pure, we don't get to pick and choose. They can't be separated from each other. We can't zero in on one and leave the other two behind. They're totally dependent on each other. Well, how can you say that? Well, these three powers are part of who Christ is, part of who indwells us, They're part of what he does. And in our new lives... He lives inside us. So trying to emphasize one power over the other is like trying to embrace part of Christ but not all of Christ. Trying to take part of him without the rest. And I'm here to tell you, when Christ comes into our lives, he comes all the way in. He didn't come in stages. Then get a little bit now and a little bit later. You get all of Christ and all of his power. And if you understand this, then you should under, uh, able to understand this as well. Listen to me carefully if you understand what I just said. Every time you exercise the power to unite or the power to strengthen or the power to be pure and holy, every time you consciously work on that, you will be successful. It will work. It will work not because of you, but because of Christ in you. It will work precisely because it's not you, because it's Christ in you. You have the power of Christ in you, and he is perfect. And as you move towards these things, the Holy Spirit will encourage you on, and you'll be successful at them. It's an amazing thing. He had the power. My missionary friend was right. But I think he was missing the point. We have far more power than he ever dreamed possible. Oh, the, you know, we, we love spectacular things. I believe God moves in the miraculous. I believe he heals people. I believe that God will raise people from the dead whenever God wants to do it. Amen? But we've got something greater. We have the power of transformation. We have within us the power of the Godhead, the power of the Trinity. 
We have the power of eternity forever. With the power to live in peace and harmony with each other and with God forever. And it can't be taken from us. If we understand that, why would we settle for anything less? So right now we're going to exercise our power of unity by taking communion together. Uh, now, this is something that is unique to the body of Christ. Uh, it's something that is a, a precious moment as we look back on the sacrifice that was made for us and allows us to, to be one with him and one with each other. Um, so we not only look back on it, but we participate in it. We get to be part of the body of Christ even as he's working in our lives right now. So, uh, we have some visitors here today. If you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to take communion with us. Uh, if you don't, I just respectfully ask you to pass along the, the elements uh, and come and talk to me afterwards. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. I ask the deacons to come forward. And we'll distribute the bread, and then we'll take it together. And then we'll distribute the juice, and we'll take it together. So prepare your hearts and your minds to focus totally on Christ and uh, the blessings that we have in being believers together. And I would just ask you, um, even as we partake of these elements, uh, to bear in mind that fact that regardless of, of different opinions we may have, different uh, doctrines we may practice, that those who believe in Jesus Christ will be together forever. This is our first step towards eternity together with each other. Amen? So prepare your hearts and then we'll, we'll take the, the bread. So, Father, as your, your son gathered around him, those who remained, the 12 faithful ones, uh, to celebrate the, that last meal together. And he held up that bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. They were about to eat that bread. This was a, a new concept for them. Uh, I'm sure they wondered uh, what was going on, but the picture 
of that one body being distributed equally to each of his followers gives us a picture of the unity that we have, Father. One body, different individuals, yet somehow supernaturally, miraculously united and knit together as the bride of your son. So without hesitation or reservation, uh, he held it up and blessed it, and he said, take and eat. Lord, we thank you for everything that means. So even as he creates this image of the bread, the body, even as he brings these followers together to form one body, the work's not done yet. He says, I brought you together. I made you the body of Christ. I made you the bride. But you have to be cleansed. And throughout the Old Testament, we saw that The shedding of blood was for the cleansing of sins, the remission of sins. It was a symbol. It wasn't the actual act. It just pointed towards what was happening in that room 2,000 years ago at that moment. So Christ holds up a cup, and he says, this is my blood. And they understood exactly what he meant. Blood was the essence of life. It was the center of everything. It was held in high regard. And it was shed from time to time to, for the remission of sins. But we find out that it didn't really remove the sins, but Jesus was in the middle of doing that right then. So he says, be together and be cleansed and come into the presence of God for his glory. Take and drink.
Father, we, we give you thanks for giving us power. And Father, we would ask your forgiveness and mercy for those times when we have distorted that and made that notion about us. But Lord, we pray that as we learn, as your spirit moves in us, you would continue to draw us unto you, Father, continue to show us what our priorities should be and how we should conduct ourselves as messengers of your grace and mercy. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to stand for a second. Let's adjourn with this. Bow your heads, please. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with more power. Um, There's still more. And if you'd like to talk to me, I'll be standing over here in the corner. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.